Amen. You may be seated. I know I say this a lot, but there is, for a pastor, there are few things sweeter than hearing God's people um, sing the gospel back to you. I often think I have the best seat in the house because I get to hear um, you singing. And often, um, as Sundays approach, I'm sure I'm not the only one who at times, you know, finds the heart dull and unbelieving and dragging myself by faith um, into God's presence and then finding, as I hear you singing, these truths about Jesus to Jesus and getting to kind of be a spectator on the sideline that my own heart is renewed and fed on the grace of the gospel. So praise God for that. Well, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. If you're visiting with us online or um, maybe here for the first time, we are working our way through the book of Revelation. And uh, we're in a section here where Jesus is writing seven letters to seven churches. We're on the second church, the church of Smyrna, starting with verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's word. Would you join with me and pray God's blessing on his word preached. Lord Jesus, you are the one who stands now in heaven having conquered sin, Satan, and death. You are reigning. You're reigning as a lamb slain for sinners. You're reigning as a king with a sword coming out of your mouth. And so we pray that with the compassion of a savior for sinners and the power of a reigning king, speak with your sword into our hearts. Cut what's there. Reveal what needs to be taken out. Heal what needs to be healed. Mend what's broken. And do so by your power, for as we have sung, there's no wisdom that we could boast of in our own, only the one wisdom that we receive from your word. And so, come and speak. We pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> what would you die for? On the surface, it's sort of a common question, right? And the first thing that maybe comes to mind is, you know, I'll, I'll die for my kids. I'll die for my spouse. And there's those sort of obvious things that when it comes, like, I'd take a bullet for those things, but underneath the surface, they're, they're sort of the not-so-obvious questions, because they're really layers 
to that question, I often say that following Jesus is a constant test of allegiances. There are things that are, are constantly trying to creep in and steal our allegiance away from Jesus. And so that question, what are you willing to die for, has layers of death to it. For instance, some are literally willing to sacrifice your health for your career. I'm willing to work long hours, skip meals just so I can march up the ladder. I'm willing to give things up. I'm willing to give things up for my health. Not just so that I can be healthy, but so that I can have the ideal body. I'm willing to die a few deaths of not eating cupcakes or not eating entire meals or being malnourished or exercising too much just so that I could pursue the promises of having the ideal body image. And some of you are are willing to give up your savings of retirement for the sake of your children's athletic careers or their academic success. It goes on. I mean, we're all faced with these questions all day long. What are we willing to give up for the things that we adore the most? Those things that function as refuges, a source of power and life and identity in our lives. It's not always obvious. But here's underlying it. The question is, if the question is, what are you willing to die for? The answer at all times is, you're willing to die for the things that you love the most. And the things that we love the most are the things that we think will give us the most life, the most power, the most identity that will love us back. And so Jesus is addressing this letter to a church that he is preparing to die for him. He warns them, you're about to suffer for 10 days. You're going to enter into this tribulation for 10 days. And he's addressing it to a church in the city of Smyrna. Now, some historical and geographical context is important to understand why he's saying this to this particular church. Smyrna, modern-day Izmir in Turkey, is a gorgeous city that sits on the coast of the Aegean Sea in Asia modern, modern-day Turkey. Ancient Smyrna was built by Alexander the Great in 334 B.C., and then in 197 B.C., Smyrna had allied itself with Roman rule. It had moved its allegiance from Greece to Rome as they saw the powers shifting in the region, as they saw Greece declining and Rome ascending. They quickly shifted their allegiance. And the way they shifted their allegiance is important as well. Smyrna became the center for Caesar worship at the time, as as, as often happened in the ancient world if you could capture the religious affections of the people and marry it to the political aspirations then you had a strong foothold and so as caesar ascended to the place of religious prominence smyrna seeing an opportunity said we'll host that we'll be the center for caesar worship because they realized that with that changing of allegiance came both political and economic advantages because they sat at the crossroads of major trade routes. It was advantageous for them to create influence and affluence. And so it was said of 
Smyrna. The ancient Smyrna was such a beautiful city and so prominent that it was first in beauty and first in riches. Because where there is influence and affluence, power and riches, it creates an intense pressure to compromise the gospel. I had a seminary professor who would say to us, he said many things that you'd often leave the classroom mad and then 20 years later you realized he was right. Um, And he would often say to us, I'm just telling you right now at the front end that you will face, every single one of you will face the choice between your prosperity or your faith and you will always, almost always choose riches. Safety, comfort. It's a constant pressure when you have influence and affluence to make small and subtle compromises for the sake of the gospel. And often, if not always, they are so subtle that you seldom realize that you're doing it. That was the kind of pressure that the church in Smyrna was facing. Subtle compromises to maintain affluence and influence. And so Jesus is writing this letter, delivering to a church that was going to quickly face this question, do you love Jesus enough that you would rather deny, die, you'd rather die than make subtle compromises for the sake of the gospel? And I suggest this is not unique to the city of Smyrna or the people in China today. This is the constant test of allegiances that is true for every Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus, he promised in this world you will have tribulation. You're going to pressure to conform. That's the baseline for the people of Jesus because we're exiles and aliens in the world because we've been united to him and his experience in the world was that he was misunderstood, dismissed, forced and tempted to make compromises and when he didn't, they crucified him. And so Jesus addresses to the church in Smyrna four areas that I think are universally true, because remember, these were circular letters. They were meant not just to be addressed to the church in Smyrna, but to be distributed and read, as we're doing today, for all churches at all times. And I think Jesus is giving four areas where we will experience the pressure to compromise. And it's these four. The loss of riches, the loss of reputation, the loss of freedom, and for some, the loss of life. But I also want us to know this, that in the upside-down kingdom, what Jesus is promising is that in these losses are the pathway to life. We're united to Jesus in death and resurrection. That the cross is the pathway to the crown. And that he's promising that if you lose for his sake, you will gain. That's the way of the cross, and that's where we're going to go today. So let's look at these four areas of loss, and then we'll look at the four promises Jesus attaches to it. 
First, the loss of riches. Verse 9. I know your poverty, but you're rich. You see, what's going on is the trade guilds in the Roman Empire were very similar to our trade unions, which meant that in the Roman Empire, if you wanted to be a bricklayer, then you needed to belong to the bricklayer trade guild in order to get some work. Each trade guild, and here was where the rub was for those who were followers of Jesus, each trade guild had a god that they would offer sacrifice to. They would work to appease that god, to make a simple compromise. That meant that when someone became a follower of Jesus and quit offering sacrifice to the guild's gods, they were often kicked out and lost their job. And so Jesus is saying, I know what you've done. You, you think you're poor because you've, you've made decisions not to compromise in your job, and so you've experienced loss. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you will, if you've not yet faced this type of pressure to conform, just make a few adjustments here and there for the greater good. It's the way it can look in our lives. You can get looked over for a promotion because your boss knows that you cannot be counted on as a follower of Jesus to cheat on your timesheet or your clients, that you might look out for your clients, your better good rather than the baseline um, of the company's economics, if you might have a choice. I'm not going to sell this to that person because they don't need it. I'm not going to do that just so that the company can make it ahead or maybe you're blackballed because in your industry you're known as a man or woman of integrity and there's only so far you're going to go up the line. Or students, as you consider about careers and what you're going to do. Maybe you say, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to work on the Sabbath day. It's a day I've been told to keep holy. I'm not going to work on the Sabbath day. There's certain jobs that may not be open for you. Maybe you won't sacrifice leaving your family, leading your family or your spouse, the things that Jesus also calls you to do besides your career. And you're going to say, look, I'm going to be home at night as much as I can. I'm not going to work 80 hour weeks because I need to lead my Wife, I need to invest in my children. Make those decisions and you're pushed off to the side as a follower of Jesus. They're not seeing promotion. Those type of compromises are very real world things that as a follower of Jesus, you face all day long and every day. And Jesus says, look, I, I know. I know that you've lost riches to follow me. And then he says, there's going to be a loss of reputation too. Verse 9, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Here's what's going on here. Judaism was the legal religion of Rome at the time, which meant that the Jews were exempt from having to offer sacrifice to Caesar as a god. They got a free pass out of that system. And for the early days of the church, it was assumed that this was just a sect of Judaism. So Christians got by until the Jews started kicking them out of their synagogues and then slandering them. And their slander made Christianity an illegal religion. And I think this is one of the things that you're going to be threatened, that we are going to be threatened with. Increasingly, we're probably feeling a little bit of this tension now in our culture. Increasingly, you are going to be accused of things that you'll find yourself just saying, it's just not true. You're going to be accused of being narrow-minded and 
and aberrant because you're a follower of Jesus and you believe his word is true. You're going to find yourself being considered or equated with a Muslim fundamentalist because you believe there is an authoritative text that you need to live your life under, that God has given this to you. And you, need to, and you think, when you accuse that, you're like, that's just not even, that's not even close to what I'm trying to say. But from the outside looking in, these are the type of slanderous things that will be said or are said today about the followers of Jesus. You'll be called a big, bigot if you uphold, if hold to the biblical definition of sexuality. And I think that this is one of the things that we'll be increasingly accused of the most in our culture, that you will find yourselves being pushed to the side with slanderous accusations. And while I hope none of those things are true about you, and they should not be true about us, you will be slandered and your reputation will be put on the line, a reputation that you may have worked years to earn with your friends or in a city, or with your neighbors. Jesus says, I, I know. You hear the tenderness in that? I know what you're going through. It's not like these are things that he's like, uh, what? He's like, I know. I know that you've lost riches, and I know that you've lost your reputation, but if you're also hold up, you're going to lose your freedoms too. Verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison. We don't face this kind of threat often, but you need to know that our brothers and sisters around this world face it all day long, most days. There are more Christians persecuted in the world today than at any other time in history. China, India, Somalia, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Egypt, Belarus, Myanmar, Vietnam, Malaysia, North Korea, parts of Uganda, Russia, Sub-Saharan Africa in increasing numbers. Saharan Africa. It doesn't matter where you go. Many of Jesus's people are being locked up. And Jesus says to us, that may not be what you're facing. You have a role to play in getting them to the end. Pray for them. That God would grant them joy as they're severed from their families, often with no hope of seeing them again. Pray that Jesus would sustain them. For one part of the body suffers, all parts suffer. We suffer together and bear each other up. God, they cannot make it alone. You know this. Sustain them and give them joy. Remind them of your promises. And then for some, the loss of life. And in that, we need to pray. God, keep them to the end. Just keep them all the way to the end. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. The loss of riches, the loss of reputation, the loss of freedom, the loss of life. Jesus is saying this is what can be expected when you follow me. Listen to the way John Stott, uh, the British pastor, once addressed this to his people. Our tendency is to dilute the gospel. It's not to disown it, it's to dilute the gospel. To lower our standards in order not to give offense. Make it more palatable, get rid of the offensive things. We love the praise of our fellow human beings more than the praise of God. And I am not recommending that we develop a martyr complex or that we court opposition. I'm just saying 
that if we compromised less, we would undoubtedly suffer more. I'll be the first one to admit, brothers and sisters, friends, this is a constant wrestling match in my heart that I usually lose. Which is why I think Jesus often leads his people here because it's a constant test of allegiances. And in part, what he's doing is he's saying, those things that you're losing aren't worth keeping because what you will gain from me will be me. And I will be the greatest treasure your heart has ever owned. And so look at what he says in comfort in verse 10. Do not fear. It's either really cold and harsh or it's otherworldly bold. And you see what he's doing? He's just like, I'm, I, I'm enough for your hungry hearts. Because if Jesus is enough, then we can easily give up our riches, our reputation, our freedom, even our life. If he's enough, he's a treasure worth selling everything else to gain his kingdom. Because whatever this world promises, it will not deliver. And this world runs on a merit-based system. Do this, we'll give you that. And if you've not found this out yet, you will soon. It never keeps its promises. It always moves the line. You cannot earn or do enough to gain the world's pleasure. And if you try, you'll always find out there's somebody better than you at it. But here's the gracious thing of King Jesus. He is enough. He freely gives. He knows Verse 9, he's compassionate, sympathetic again. I know your tribulation, your poverty, your slander. He's not saying, I know about these things. These are not things that are foreign to him. When he says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, I know your slander, it's because he's experienced all of these things. He experienced tribulation by the hands of his own people until they killed him in the most barbaric way they knew how They uttered all kinds of insults against him Uh, just days after he wept over them for their unbelief. He mocked, they mocked him as he laid there dying. He knows with intimacy. You know, the American slaves were sinned against in their enslavement, but you know, they knew that Jesus was compassionate and so they were able to come up with this song nobody knows the trouble i've seen nobody knows but jesus that was first published in 1867 the generation that came out he knows what it's like to be unjustly treated to sing this song so he knows because of that He knows how to strengthen, encourage, and sustain at just the right time with all the measures of his gracious riches. He holds nothing back and will only let us be tested four times that are under his control and will come to an end. 
And the reason he can say, don't fear, is because he's the one who reigns. Listen to how he introduces himself in verse 8. The words of the first and last. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I started this, I'm going to finish it. You know what struck me as from a reading from Ezekiel 7 was this grand display of God's judgment and the people had no answer for it. Like they said, you know what, it's almost anticlimactic. They armed themselves and they didn't have any place to go because they couldn't stand. I started this, I'm going to finish it. I'm the first and the last. I'm in complete control. I'm reigning over even your tribulation and I'm going to come again and put an end to this and then you'll dwell with me. New heavens, new earth, it'll be over. This is just for a season. Verse 10, he says to the church, you'll have tribulation for 10 days. It's a direct reference back to Daniel chapter 1. And he's calling into remembrance that time and the whole experience of Daniel. When Daniel was like, you know what, I'm not going to compromise for the sake of affluence and influence. So he asks God to liberate him and to give him relief, and he does. After 10 days, it comes to his rescue. It comes to an end. And this is what's going on. In other words, your tribulation is not going to go on forever. It will come to an end. I will bring a close to this. And he can only say that if he is the one who is actively and intimately involved in ordering all of the events of history, including the hairs on your head that fall to the ground that you unaware of. Nations rise and fall at Jesus' commands. The winds blow and shift According to his order, pandemics start and stop when he wishes and always accomplishes his purposes because he is first and last. And he's not absent when his people are being persecuted and when we go through times of testing and he's going through a difficult trial in life, he is orchestrating everything that comes to pass. And know there always comes to an end to these things. Because you will either die and enter into his glorious presence, free from the tribulation of your own heart and this world, or he will come again and bring the new heavens and new earth. Either way, Jesus wins. And he's generous with his reward. Verse 10. I will give you the crown of life. The message of the world is, you earn it, you can have it. Take some cheats to get there. That's okay. We'll turn a blind. But if you earn it, you can have it. Jesus says, Mm-mm, that's not the way my kingdom works. The only people who can have it are the people who don't deserve it. The only people who can have my riches are the people who have destitute in themselves. The only way you get it is if I give it. And the only way I'll give it is if I earn it for you, I will give you the crown of life. That's not a royal crown here. Later on, it's going to be. This is the victor's crown in a race. You've seen it in the movies. A crown put on the victor's head. You've won. You made it to the finish line. You are victorious. And you see the vocabulary for the Christian life is never perfecting. It's never doing it right. It's never conquering on your own it's rather words like 
keeping and waiting and enduring and remaining. Finish the race. You don't have to come in first. You just need to finish. Sometimes that finishing might be crawling on your hands and knees to the finish line. Sometimes it might be having your brothers and sisters throw you over their shoulders and together we're just dragging it through to the finish line. But you finish and your legs are limp. And he says, I got a gift. I'm going to give you the victor's crown. Not because you earned it, because I earned it. And I freely give. You see, if you're not a Christian, that's how the gospel works. Jesus takes your place so you can have his place. On the cross, he dies. He dies the death we deserve to die for our sin. He gives us the reward he deserves. That's the heart of the gospel, the best news you have heard all week. So the crown of life is not earned by running the race of our wives well. It is won by simply clinging to Jesus all the way to the end. And he preserves through death. And you see, this is why Jesus can make this promise. He's the one who died for sin and rose from the dead in victory. He doesn't promise that he's going to save us from death. He promises to protect his people through death. These are the words of the first and the last who died and rose again. Therefore, you're going to go through all these things for me. I'll win. You'll win with me. And therefore, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. If your faith is in Christ, the second death is a reference to the coming judgment. If your faith is in Christ, you can look at that and go, that ain't going to hurt. You can look at your sin and go, oh, I look at the cross and see, he was crucified for my sins once for all. God is not a God of injustice, but of justice. He punished his son. All his wrath was poured out on him so that those who are in Christ can go, death is but a gateway into the blessing of God and the freedom that Jesus has earned for me. This saying, Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, the saying's trustworthy. That's, what, that's Paul's way of grabbing Timothy, his young protege, by the shirt collar and looking him in the eyes and saying, listen to me, listen to me. This saying is trustworthy. If you've died with him, you'll also live with him. If you endure, you'll reign with him. If you deny him, he'll also deny you. If we're faithless, though, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Polycarp was just a child when he heard these words read in his little church in Smyrna. He would eventually grow up and become a disciple of the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, who then, after his exile in Patmos, would become a leader in this church. In 156 A.D., just probably 60 years after Jesus writes this letter to the church in Smyrna, the Roman officials came looking for Polycarp. He had fled the city and because his flock had pled for him to. Leave, you're too valuable, we need you around. Leave the city and 
The Roman officials tracked him down. He didn't, he didn't run then. Instead, he provided food and drink for the officials. Asked them for time to pray. They granted it to him. Finally, on the way to Rome, the officer in charge urged him, please, you've shown this, please just deny Jesus. What harm can it do to sacrifice to the emperor? Polycarp stood firm. He refused to recant. He was offered that chance on two other occasions. And his final reply was this. For 86 years, I've served Jesus. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The Roman official then threatened him. Swear by Caesar, I have wild beasts. And if you will not change your mind, I'm going to throw you to him. Call him. Polycarp responded. Then they decided to burn him at the stake. Polycarp's response then when threatened with being burned at the stake was this. You threaten me with fire that burns for a season and is soon quenched. For you are ignorant of the fire of the judgment to come and of the eternal punishment reserved for the wicked. But do you delay? Bring whatever you wish. As a heart that had been prepared 86 years ago, by this word. They weren't facing it then. But the one who's the first and the last sealed him with his love. And confident in that victory, he was freed from the fear of man and looked forward to what had been earned for him and given to him by Christ that which was to come, and the new heavens and new earth. This gospel is the best thing we have in this world. And it's not worth making compromises over. Let's pray. Lord, I would ask that as we come to the table, We come to the table of the one who died and is alive forevermore. And we're weak. We'll never be what you call us to be unless by your grace and your power you sustain us. And so, make by these common elements used by your spirit make our hearts full of your love for us for we pray this in your name our savior amen